Hi everyone, welcome to season four of The Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg, Germany. I'm Andrew Sola, the founder and producer of the show. It's February, which is African American Heritage Month in the US, and we're celebrating with an episode about Octavia Butler, which we first published in 2021. This podcast is part of a number of projects we are doing for African American Heritage Month. If you are interested in African American culture, check out our specially curated reading list, which highlights African American history and books by Black authors. I've posted a link to the list in the show notes. As a member of the American Centrum, you can use this ebook catalog for free. Please visit our website for membership information. Become a member to get your free access to thousands of books and magazines. And stay tuned for new episodes of The Transatlanticist, which will be coming out next week. We'll be starting out with the exciting topic of new democracy initiatives around the world. Take care, everyone. adaptability and persistent positive obsession. Welcome to Lady Fiction. This is our first episode hosted by the America Centrum Hamburg. My name is Stephanie Schaefer and I'm really excited to be talking to you today about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower and the Parable of the Talents. For this first episode in honor of Black History Month, we decided to read two books by an African-American author who has been overlooked and is currently going through a revival. We think her writing is super timely and we think it links and connects very well to the debates that we're seeing in the present moment after the election of President Biden and a fresh start for fighting for equal rights. And I'm going to waste no time and introduce right away my wonderful guest, Professor Alexandra Ganza from the University of Wien. Uh, who is Professor of American Studies, where she's also researching astrocultures, astrofuturism, mobility and mobility futures, and she has a project on colonizing Mars. Her other research interests include Black Atlantic Studies, uh, Transnational and Transatlantic American Studies, and she has a book out on pirates, um, which we will launch in May. So I'm very happy to have Alexandra on the podcast today and to have you as my first guest for pick, kicking this off. And I'd like to start uh, by talking to you about this first phrase that I just read out about prodigy and then get us into the topic of Octavia Butler's writing. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be part of this conversation on Octavia Butler's parable series. And thank you for inviting me, Steffi. So I think the first uh, sentence already tells us a lot about this book. You open it. Before we even see this first sentence, we see the year. And it's set in 2024. So we're now in 2021. And when we open this book right away, we think, wow, so is this, is this going to tell me that everything has come true, what people thought earlier, that this will happen in the future? It's no longer the future for us, right? Three years away, it's almost nothing. 
So that intrigues one right away, I think. And then we also see that this first sentence is a quote, right? Uh, and it says, it's a quote from Earthseed, The Books of the Living, by one Lauren Oya Olamina. So we're all wondering right away. So I think that's why this is really a great opening. We're wondering right away, what is she quoting from? Who is this Lauren Olamina? Who, what is Earthseed? What does it mean, the books of the living? For me, that was the first kind of eye-opener, thinking, hey, there is some Egyptian discourse here right away, like talking back to the Book of the Dead. And as we know in Afrofuturism, Egypt and the Egyptian um, cosmolo cosmologies play a big, big role. And um, yeah, at a later point, this also appears in Butler. And then this first sentence from Earthseed, which we will find out is a combination of a journal and a theological treatise, maybe, and poetry. So it's a very uh, multi-genre text that text within the novel that is created by Butler. The very first sentence tells us basically, in a nutshell, what this new creed called Earthseed is all about. So. The greatest wonder we might translate it in, or say it in other words um, is the, the very fact that maybe human, human beings, but also beyond that, maybe that the universe is adaptable and persistent. But then there's also positive obsession. So I think the, those last two words are also quite interesting. So judging from this first uh, phrase, I mean, it's a huge phrase and it makes huge claims. It's loaded with with nouns, prodigy is at its essence. So it's, it gives us this wonderful, big wordy uh, definition of this thing that we don't know yet about. And I was I was really intrigued when I thought about this kind of first phrase when we talk about the heroine or the protagonist narrator, also the architect of Earthseed, this new creed that goes towards the future and her self-assertion. She just starts writing and she this book is also her manifesto at the same time so there's a, a meta textual um and meta generic implication you hold the book in the hand and then this is lauren oya olamina talking to us from the future into the present and um as we start reading i mean it's it's a great opener obviously but as we start reading we also are uh quickly become aware of the fact that she is a strong, self-assertive young black woman who really doesn't care about so many conventions. She's the daughter of a, a minister. She lives in a gated community, more or less safely um, outside L.A. And she knows things have will start to change very soon because in the year 2024, there's riots happening outside. The police is dysfunctional. The institutions have failed and regularly there are attacks by uh, the poor who live just outside this gated community. So she's privileged, but at the same time, she's not super rich. And um, this kind of heroine is what fascinated me very much when I when I read the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents, because she is the sower, but at the same time, she has a lot of things to say about her contemporary society and the society that and uh, the, the nation state that built the society that she's living in. So maybe we can, we can discuss that a little bit. This badass prodigy person, um, this protagonist and speaker who re reaches out to us. Well, how did you perceive her? 
I think it's great that you already talked about that writing is so uh, uh, important in this book, because as our protagonist sees uh, and narrator, in, at least in the first part, we shouldn't forget that in the second part, um, the uh, parable of the talents, we get a, a rather critical second narrator, which is her daughter to be, <laughs> who doesn't exist in the first book yet. So Lauren witnesses her world, the world around her disintegrating. She witnesses the nation state being in disarray. She witnesses the middle class to which she would have belonged in a different context, kind of disintegrating so that the economy is more or less a barter economy that they can get by, um, but it's no longer a middle-class kind of standard life. And as this world continues to fall apart, the only thing Lauren can really hold on to is the word, is writing. It's the only thing that even in the biggest, yeah, in, in the biggest moments of crisis that she experiences, she somehow finds a way to write and to order the chaos through writing that is around her and to create this, this new creed by which um, the aim is, of course, to find alternatives, alternative communities and an alternative ideology, we might call it, or religion. It's spiritual, but on the other hand, it's also quite secular. It doesn't have to do anything with kind of the classical established religions. It is about God, but God is defined as change. So, yeah, and there we go with uh, the, our badass heroine, as you called her, and how much she anticipates. So I also read her that way. She's absolutely intriguing. I, therefore, I also recommend this books, these books for younger readers because she's 15-year-old, and we watch her. It's also kind of a Bildungsroman. We watch her grow up. How, and how can you get Bildung when you're on the run, when you're constantly threatened by rape, by her own body, because we, um, she also has this, what is called a dysfunction in this uh, society or what people are ashamed of. She's a sharer, which means um, she can feel or at least participate in the feelings that other people have. And that's not always very welcome. So this creates also a lot of narrative tension. Uh, one of the worst scenes for me to read, like worst in terms of, how I reacted to it was, of course, when she gets raped, because this is the ultimate exposure for her. She doesn't only feel her own pain, but she also feels the pleasure of the person who actually uh, rapes her. So so this is really hard to read, and uh, Butler is really asking something from us. So it's not just a feel-good book. But anyway, um, yeah, we follow her. And, and by clinging to writing, by clinging to her creed, um, she finds a way of survival. And that's, yeah, pretty impressive. So the hyper-empathy part, for me, spoke as much to her revision of your average Bildungsroman hero, namely the master narrative being the Bildungsroman of the young young man going out, uh, doing his thing, and then coming back and becoming a an important citizen and an important member of the community. So that's the original logic of the Bildungsroman in the genre and its afterlives in literary culture in, in, in the Western canon. So when we call her a Bildungsroman heroine, it's also the question of how does she shield herself and her hyperempathy syndrome 
from the outside. It was caused by her mother um, uh, taking a drug during pregnancy, which is important too. So it's not inherited. It's not genetic. It's it's a result of manipulation of of pregnant bodies, and her mother didn't know that this would was would cause this um, defect or super ability uh, in her child. But I would argue that the hyper empathy can be read in both ways. Once she gets a gets a grasp of it, uh, on the one hand, she's um, she can sometimes direct what she shares. She also is exposed to more pain than others when she's fighting. And there's a lot of fighting in the novel. She has to fight for her life many times. And she does it despite the fact that she's exposed to even more pain because she sees the people who are felt left and right of her to next to her. She sees them dying and she experiences death. Um, and only with death is it over. So it's a superpower. It makes her even stronger. But it also makes her um, know things differently. And that's what intrigued me so much. So um, this is not your brainy intellectual Bildungskonzept that we have. Read many books, think about many philosophical concepts, grow up to be a valuable citizen. But her um, approach to things and her approach to Earthseed as well is one that is knowledge through feeling. And in this vein, um, I think we could talk a little bit more about what, what the Earthseed Creed is and what the vision for this future is, and then eventually come around to Butler's stunning renaissance uh, and the, the revival of her works in the current moment, which is one of the, the talking points that I want to come to. So, so knowing and feeling. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's so important. So first, I think when when we read it, maybe today we think hyper empathy. How can that be kind of a, a negative thing? That uh, I mean, the hyper suggested, but in a in a society where we all feel empathy um, is very often lacking, and we need a lot more empathy, uh, we think it's there's never enough of it, right? Uh, within the world of the book, it is a detriment. It's also something that people are ashamed about. They're not talking about it. Also, I wanted to add that the drug that the drug that caused it is actually was um, a drug that kind of pushes your uh, achievements and pushes your energy. So it's kind of a classical <laughs> uh, liberal kind of overachieving <laughs> drug. So and this produces what is so badly needed, actually, um, empathy, but in a way that is not pleasant for the person who experiences that. At the same time, it's not just a personal or we can revise the genre of the Bildungsroman with it, but we can also see this as a political category because through um, showing us that Lauren becomes kind of a new, we might call her a leader figure after all, I would still say yeah, she's kind of the founding mother of Earthseed, of this creed, which in the end is, is really followed and, and she experiences more or less a happy end. Um, we can talk about that too. Um, has been very much criticized. I'm not sure what I think about it myself. But it's also a gift in the sense that you this search for new ways of living and community can only work uh, on the basis of understanding one, an one another and of accepting difference, but still creating unity. And I think that's why also it is so important that this current political moment through the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, but also, and I, I think that's also so interesting in this book, it, and we can come to, this is already answering your, uh, or touching on the point of why it's so important today, or why it's so topical, 
that it, it comes from the 1960s. It takes up lots of civil rights movement um, inspiration as well, but then it moves on in the 1990s and it's basically that was that's what Butler always always stood for. It's kind of the epitome of the rainbow coalition idea that you can unite for political issues and reasons, uh, and that doesn't have to be uh, or doesn't have to be based on your skin color or your class or your gender. So, so I find it interesting how feeling becomes a political category in in this book, and this is also where I see the feminist kind of intervention that that this book makes. So the, the, the feeling and the hyper-empathy part, I think, are so key for um, the contemporary moment that they actually contributed to making Butler's Parable of the Parable of the uh, Sour her first ever bestseller last year. So Butler passed away in 2006, and throughout her life, she was always said she, you know, she was longing for gratification or she was longing for for fame and rightfully so she's written so many novels but on the one hand um she's a, a marginalized figure in science fiction and on the other hand of course her future dystopias retrotopias uh work only through american history per se so um in her 1980 essay lost races of science fiction um, she asks, why have there been so few minority characters in science fiction? And uh, she says, why does, why does science fiction not reach into the lives of ordinary everyday humans who happen not to be white? She laments that blacks, Asians, Hispanics, Amerindians have been absent. And uh, of course, this uh, in Parable of the Sour, she uh, includes them. So this is a book that, that skyrocketed in the sales numbers last year amidst the experience uh, of Black Lives Matter protests, police brutality, and the questions, where did the civil rights movement leave us? Has it been enough? Are we, do we have to get on the road again and, and do this over again with the absolutely atrocious um, violence dealt from the hands of the state through the police? The backdrop for this bestseller is that everybody got back to reading because we're basically locked down in a global pandemic. So the crisis moment in the U.S., I would argue, is, is accelerated by the combination of these um, Black Lives Matter protests and um, the mistreatment of minorities by the Trump government and the Trump administration and their inability to respond adequately to a global pandemic. So life was at risk in so many ways and protesting also meant that you put yourself you expose yourself to potential infection from the virus or with the virus so it's it's a timely novel i think to look into a very near future if this is what happens in in three or four years time uh then um Octavia Butler um, will have sketched, on the one hand, a dystopian future and a, a Afrofuturist future, I would argue. And that's the question. So we can't give away any any spoilers. I, I don't think we should we should spoil the reading for uh, the ending for the listeners of this podcast because we do want you to read it. Okay, go around, read it, and then tell us what you think. But at the same time, the question is, how does Butler respond to Afro-pessimist tenets in the present moment that say African-Americans 
uh, or black people have never been um, seen as human in the United States as a state that was built on systemic racism, on gratuitous uh, violence, and on slave labor, uh, and that the enslaved have no agency. This is an Afro-pessimist tenet, and she offers something else, and I'd like to, maybe we could discuss this with regard to the present moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think there is both um, astrofuturism in a more optimistic sense in there, but I, I do also feel, especially at the ending, which we don't want to spoiler, Mm, there is some kind of lead towards Afro-pessimism as well. Maybe it's also interesting for our listeners to know that there was a third volume of the series, that there was one planned and, and Butler also started it, but she never finished it. She also dealt with writer's block and wrote a couple of other things. She would have probably written the third part, maybe. Yeah, we don't know. Unfortunately, we can only miss Octavia Butler and not hear her voice again and how the story of Lauren and her daughter continues. What also connects this book so much um, to our present moment, so there were a couple of things in there that also I found rather depressing because seeing it has been written or published in 1993, there's so many things in there that are as pressing today, even more pressing maybe. Yeah. So we have global warming, we have sea levels rising, we have a lot of homelessness. We have pandemics in there. We have a politician who uses the slogan, make America great again. Of course, uh, Butler here is not citing, prophesying uh, uh, Trump, but she's citing Reagan. Um, and, and how democracy is really disintegrating and um, the corporate towns, the uh, reinvention, so to say, of slavery. Yeah, we haven't talked about slavery, but I think we can read this, these novels, or not just me, I mean, many people have said that, as, as neo-slave narratives. They are about people of color, not just black people, but uh, of course we have a black narrator and she knows best um, what it means uh, to live in a society of slavery um, and to have slavery reintroduced. And of course it's also heavily gendered, yeah? So reproduction, rape plays a huge role in the submission um, of resistant women under this new regime. So yeah, it it has a really depressing moment for me, seeing that in 30 years we haven't solved any of these uh, problems. We're there, just as Butler told us so much about the moments to come. If it's prophecy or not, yeah, we don't know. Um, some of the things have happened, other things might happen. Um, so this is futurism, I guess, and speculative fiction, of course, too. So just a quick question back. Um, the futurisms, I, I hear in what you're talking about that there, on the one hand, there's a positive outlook uh, that C C Butler conveys to us, but there's also a warning in, in typical dystopian or maybe utopian tradition uh, saying that, you know, knowing what we know now in the present of 2024, we should have been much more careful in the 1990s. So, so positive, negative, both. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, there's a lot of agency in there and a lot of spirit of survival, but there are also many hard, really hard truths in there. So um, Lauren is not a fan of violence, but in this society without a gun, you cannot survive. We have uh, 
actually her in the first volume, in the first couple of chapters, I think there is some kind of a prepper discourse in there. Yeah, so we need to learn kind of all the basic, uh, all the basic skills that we need to survive. We need to uh, store stashes of food and documents, copies of documents somewhere in the earth, uh, secure them. So there's a lot of apocalyptic, um, yeah, an apocalyptic mood in there. And we're all thinking, because we haven't mentioned that the destiny, um, the new destiny that this creed of Earth Seed is um, propagating is actually Exodus. So Exodus to interstellar Exodus. So Exodus to the stars, the colonization of the universe. And this is for me the most interesting part, because it's on the one hand, a really American narrative. So it totally writes into the frontier logic of, and yeah, we can go back to the 19th century that on the frontier, this is where you rejuvenate the nation, the society, you create something new. America has always been a nation of new beginnings um, from its very uh, inception. Of course, that's the do from the dominant perspective, yeah. So uh, it's interesting when an, when an African-American writer takes up this perspective and projects it onto the stars. And um, I think for a long time, or for me as a reader, I wasn't sure what to think of that for a long time. Because I thought, okay, this is a 15-year-old girl fantasizing about, you know, flying off in a rocket ship. I mean, we all experienced that when we were 15, right? That we just wanted to get away <laughs> to somewhere else, <laughs> you know, a better space maybe. But this kind of rewriting of this frontier narrative, uh, I find very interesting. But it's maybe also the thing that weighs down on the book a little bit. But then I would have to talk about the end again, and I won't. <laughs> All the mention of, of space were intriguing to me, and that's why I'm so happy I get to talk to you about this. Um, because... So there's a space program um, weirdly in the making in the year 2024. So it's almost, it seems like the U.S. is on the cusp of putting this into practice and sending, shipping people off to live somewhere else um, and to colonize. Uh, I think um, they're talking about Alpha Centauri quite a bit, which is a bit of a sci-fi joke also, uh, secret code. But so the U.S., the, you know, trailblazing nation when it comes to space programs, first person to walk on the moon, first, uh, you know, NASA program. We've, we've been uh, confronted with those narratives in the last few years in popular culture over and over. I'm thinking about hidden figures um, and it's a commentary on the civil rights movement and the space program. A few years ago, at the, at, the, at the end of the Obama administration, this was kind of a, the going out feel good film about this. So, the U.S. is on the cusp of doing this, but then they're selling out to other nations. So they're selling the space program out and they're incorporating it because the president in the second novel says um, it shouldn't be reserved only to a few scientists. It should be sold so we can make taxpayers money. We can get taxpayers money back and then anybody who's who's moneyed enough can go. So that's the one thing. And we have this fantasy of, of Earthseed and uh, uh, adherence to Earthseed taking off and uh, to be among the stars and scattering themselves among the stars. The other instance is, is this recurring news story in the opening of this astronaut who went out to space uh, and decided to die there. 
So it's also, it's not, sure, it's not certain what space is. And this is something that is kind of a bit of a hauntology in the novel. So we have this, so she went and she stayed. She didn't want to come back to Earth because Earth and the U.S. was all corrupted and dangerous. So she, she chose to die in outer space and nobody can make her come back. So it's, it's on the one hand, it's an act of self-assertion. On the other hand, it's also an act of, of, of turning away from civilization and, and giving up on the utopian project that the United States all also is from its beginning. And there's very little talk about how this colonizing of other spaces should be done. So I was wondering how much science fiction is it or is it just visionary science fiction without the technical details that weighs it down? That's a wonderful point that you're raising, um, because I think that makes a, a big difference whether we read this as kind of hard science fiction. Um, and there are some very popular films and books about uh, a hard science fiction text that give you all the, the scientific facts and make it very probable that um, this kind of interstellar colonization or exodus um, is possible. But on the other hand, there's also, or uh, but in Butler's case, I wanted to say, um, this is much more in the fantastic mode, I would say. So especially in the first part, we can say this is space, outer space. It's about finding space, right, within an America that in this novel um, is in disarray. So here we go with the Black, Black Lives Matter uh, uh, moment that is continuing. Yeah. So you talked in the past tense before, but it is not. Um, so it's it's uh, this kind of uh, fantasizing about finding a space where things work differently, where your um, where systemic racism is not kind of the basic um, tenet of society or one of the inbuilt, um, at least, structures of society. That's very interesting. And of course, why you would imagine outer space for so many reasons from an African-American perspective. So first of all, you have, as I mentioned in the beginning, Egyptian cosmology. So there's a rich African tradition um, to go back to and to be proud of and to tell another history of civilization that is not uh, Eurocentric or Western-centric. This is, this is, I think, the, the most important um, um, thing. Yeah, about and the second thing I was going to say, uh, not just Egypt, but also if we talk about the slave narrative and we read, if we read it as almost a fugitive slave narrative, um, then heaven... The stars, the North Star, of course, was one of the most important markers. Um, and before that, even going further back in the slave era, the only freedom that slave, slaves could imagine or that they often did imagine was, was religious freedom in the sense of when I die, I'm free and I'm going to heaven. Right. So we have many spiritual uh, songs about this. Uh, and this is what I what I find a great combination of African-American traditions to think about the future of all of us living together. So um, we should follow the black heroine, <laughs> if we want to call her that, or, or at least a protagonist. <laughs> we should follow Lauren and at least all try to imagine alternative spaces for peaceful communities living together in difference, with difference, but also with respect. That would be my final word.
Okay, so we have various forms of slavery um, in the novel that you already talked about. And um, this is a slavery that um, is not limited, of course, to African-American or black people. It's, it happens to anyone who's poor and who just happens to walk in the street. Um, people are robbed, um, uh, enslaved, and then they start wearing, their, they're made to wear collars that are connected to their slave drivers' um, remote controls. And whenever they act out of line, they can be exposed to unheard of pain. So it's also, um, what Butler also does is, is really make us go back to the pain of slavery, not only through um, um, Lauren's hyperempathy, but also through saying you don't have to be whipped but this can be happening at a remote control through a digital device. The other um, form of slavery is indentured slavery or what, or what Amy Kaufman has called corporate medievalism, because at one point there's a, um, there's a corporation that comes and says, uh, if you want to come work with us uh, and live in our time, town, we will protect you, but um, we won't pay you wages. We will pay you uh, food. And so the workers become indebted, indebted, uh, and over and over, and then have, see their own children sold off um, into indentured uh, slavery. So it's uh, um, a corporate form of medievalism that, is, that she also warns against. As to celebrating the um, abolitionist movement and the history of, of uh, uh, black resistance in the United States, I find it so intriguing that she has even a um, Frederick Douglass figure. And that's um, Lawrence husband uh, who has a long beard and who's already a little older because he was born in the 70s which is something that we might be able to relate to and who is when she meets him um, a Frederick Douglass figure who you know really worries for her um, uh, he's a doctor a healer and uh, somebody who helps the community grow and at the end of the day my question in this context would be with these figures is Lauren her own Harriet Tubman figure? Is she uh, a cult leader? And how how American can this be? How American is this? So a final final statement. I think I think it is, uh, especially in this vision of a new beginning. It's a very American text, but uh, it's also an alternative way of answering this question. Um, so it's not answered, at least not in the first part by classic kind of American movements, but it also shows us this, this kind of tradition of seeking new spaces, territories or spaces. Okay, thank you very much. This concludes our debate about uh, the parable of the sower uh, as two white women academics talking about the an, long overlooked uh, Af novel offered by an African-American author who um, Alexandra is going to be teaching in the summer semester. So I'm curious to hear what your students have to say about this and about the timeliness of this. And I'd like to uh, conclude by pointing our listeners to the fact that Octavia Butler is really and, you know, we assigned this text before we knew this, but surprisingly, uh, she's being canonized right now. Um, there's a, a Library of America edition of her work that was uh, published earlier uh, this year in 2021. And the Library of America uh, series is as close as to canonization as one can get. And her novels 
Kindred and uh, The Parable of the Sower were transformed into graphic novels by Damien Duffy and John Jennings. And um, The Parable of the Sower just came out in the uh, fall of 2020. So if you are interested in reading the book, we recommend that. But if you're interested in uh, looking and checking out the aesthetics um, of this uh, black hero figure and savior of the world, then we can recommend going to the graphic novel version by Damon Duffy and John Jennings. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. And until then, please keep reading. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.